Hello and welcome to this discussion with Dr. Dan Norton. Hello, Dan. Hi. Good nice to be here. Nice to see you. Okay, um, we are Dan Norton is a, has a PhD in philosophy from University of California, Davis, in 2019. I see that uh, you have studied for many years at the Ayn Rand Institute. So That's basically, right. you're promoting uh, Ayn Rand's uh, philosophy, and you're debating various uh, people. And uh, you have you can be found on YouTube. The channel is called uh, Dan Norton One, at Dan Norton One, and uh, you also have a Twitter account. Uh, you can yes. find uh, Dan Norton is the name. Okay, so um, may I ask you first, uh, what is it that interested you in Ayn Rand? Because she's a very controversial figure. I'm well aware of uh, her writings, and I think that uh, they make for a really good discussion. They, they can be used as a springboard for a very deep philosophical conversation. Um, before we say a bit about her, what is it that interested you in her from the first place? I find her writings very compelling. I first read her when I was 17, almost 18, and I was just blown away by the power of her ideas. I, th I thought she made very compelling arguments and they were uh, uh, presented in a very persuasive way. She's, she's most known as an author. She wrote fiction and she's, I think she has a beautiful style. So th the combination of her literary abilities and then her philosophical genius, I would say, uh, makes for an extremely powerful combination. And uh, above, above anything else, I just found her ideas um, persuasive. Okay. And um, very important to life. So, you know, I wanted to uh, spend a lot of time studying them and, and trying to uh, absorb the wisdom that I found there and in incorporate it into my own thinking and actions. Right. So do you think that um, her literary style is uh, in a way very potent in arguing for positions because I've heard that there are many areas in her books, there are many passages, particularly various speeches that the characters give, that they have a very potent effect on the reader and that they are very immersive and that they seem to be somehow, everyone says that they sort of feel a kind of epiphany when they, when they read them, or at least many people do. Yeah, many people do. She, she, uh, I mean, she has, um, you get uh, reactions all over the spectrum. Some people love her, some people hate her. As you yeah. mentioned, she's a, she's a very contro controversial figure. She's very polarizing. So um, I think she does um, help us identify in our, our own selves some of what, what we think, what we feel about things. She, she, she evokes that in people. She has a way of doing that with her her literary gifts and her her psychological and philosophical insights. So she she uh, spent most of her time writing, I'd say, up until Atlas Shrugged, which was published in 1957 on fiction. But then after that, she turns more to nonfiction in the 1960s and the 1970s. So she does both. She presents it in fiction. You get her philosophy there which is un unusual that you get it so um, explicitly her philosophy. I think all artists and authors, they have a kind of implicit philosophical view of the world guiding their work. But in her artistic works, the philosophy is actually made explicit. And as you mentioned, there are speeches, some, some very long speeches yeah. 
uh, in her in her novels. But then in her nonfiction years later on, she addresses things in a more um, normal nonfiction um, sort of context and also comments on cultural goings on. So she doesn't just present a new philosophy. She applies it to things going on in the world. Okay, so um, I remember there was a 60-page sort of speech in Atlas Shrugged, where she sort of systematizes her ethics. Um, if Correct me if I'm wrong. And yeah, uh, would you say that in The Fountainhead, which was written in 1940, which was published in 1943, she sort of has some insights, which she didn't systematize yet. She had not systematized yet. Because there are, I'm saying this because there are many people who think that The Fountainhead is brilliant and it contains many invaluable insights, but objectivism becomes problematic in Atlas Shrugged when she is trying to systematize those insights. And uh, they frequently say that every system is really rigid and rigid systems often lead to undesirable consequences so would you say that would you say that this is fair to, fair well I, I wouldn't say it leads to undesirable consequences but that's because i find the system persuasive uh, okay. i do think in atlas shrugged she gets much deeper into philosophy than she does in the fountainhead so in the fountainhead it is primarily i would say an ethical novel now there are implications for uh, politics yes. and there are presuppositions in metaphysics and epistemology. Like she, she talks about reason being man's means of survival. That's, that's an element that comes up in the fountainhead, but it's not stressed that the epistemological and metaphysical roots of her ethical system are not stressed as much. And I don't think she had identified them, uh, at the time of writing the fountainhead, but she had, by the time she had written Atlas Shrugged, she had developed a complete philosophy from metaphysics the the very fundamental axioms existence exists that's her primary axiom and the there's an entire philosophy that starts from those self-evident primaries so that just wasn't in place uh by the in the fountainhead but it is in atlas shrugged and um as for yeah i i wouldn't characterize i mean in a way it's it's rigid in that if you um you you can't uh violate part of it and be consistent so it's all an integrated system it all hangs together it's like mathematics you can't accept that two plus two is four or or deny that two plus two is four and accept the rest of arithmetic it's all a a integrated system and her philosophy is like that too you can't just pick and choose and say all right well i'm going to um accept the existence of god for instance but I'm going to follow reason in all my other um, endeavors and thinking. No, reason is an absolute. You have to apply it to all issues, the existence of God, how you live your life. So there are no exceptions. And in that sense, you might call it a rigid philosophy. But another way to put it is just it's a consistent philosophy. It doesn't have any loopholes that allows you little uh, escapes for your evasions, you might put it, where you, you want to get away with some little... Uh, whim she might call it uh some emotion that you want to indulge no she says you have to follow reason as an absolute consistently and across the board so i remember in an interview of hers i think it was in phil donahue she said that uh, she was putting forward a code of ethics that was necessary and universal 
And that seems to me to accord quite well with your description of it when you are describing it as analogous to mathematics. Would you say that this is fair or is it a misrepresentation? No, I think uh, saying it's universal is is accurate. She is coming up with an ethics that applies to all human beings. She named her philosophy objectivism. Uh, so as opposed to a subjective view where it's just a matter of opinion, everyone has their own view of what's right and wrong, what's good for you is good for you, what's good for me is good for me. And, uh, you know, there's no way to adjudicate that and say one system is superior to another. She says, no, there, there is an objective ethics and it can be proven scientifically. That's one of her major contributions, I would argue, is that she gave a, a, val uh, a validation of ethics and removed it from the, well the realm of just subjective opinion or uh, just religious mysticism for much of history. Uh, religion has had a monopoly on morality, uh, and it, it hasn't been thought that you can give a rational, rationally grounded answers to good and bad. I think David Hume famously said, you can't derive uh, ought from an is. Yes. Um, and Rand has, has a different, an opposing view. She, she bases ethics on uh the nature of life life is what gives rise to values that's part of her proof of uh the proper code of morality she doesn't she doesn't start by asking um which moral system should we select should we be egoists or altruists or utilitarians she asks a more fundamental question which is where does the field of ethics come from at all regardless of what your particular ethics is why do we have a need for ethics in the first place what are values? Where do they come from? And she traces that back to life. She says life is the phenomenon that gives rise to values. And there's a whole argument there, uh, which we could talk more about if you like. Of course. But she does try to get a scientific, give a scientific grounding for ethics, which does apply to all humans. So it is universal. Okay. So I think you gave me a really good idea of the structure of our discussion. What, what about the following structure? We start about, we start talking about ethical reflection and Ayn Rand's ethics. Then we talk a bit about free will, which can be connected with ethics as being, for instance, a condition of moral responsibility according to many, many, many thinkers. Not everyone, but the majority of thinkers. And then talk a bit about the axioms that you said, because you said the axiom that Rand has existence exists and the nature of reason. What if we leave that towards the end? Sure, that sounds good. Right. Okay, so I, okay, you mentioned the is-ought gap in David Hume, and I think that this is, a, this is an excellent way to start a discussion about ethics. So to my mind, I think of ethical propositions and statements uh, in terms of arguments. What do I mean by that? because it initially it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but when someone at the end says that we should, do, we should perform a, a particular act, we should abstain from another act or kind of act, or that something is valuable or that it is not valuable, I try to think of whether they think that this is something that is to be self uh, accepted as self-evident, in which case there is no bridging the gap between an ought and an is, we still accept that there are values. Values may not be reducible to 
descriptive aspects of the world, or we sort of think of the value or the normative property of an action as somehow being derived by other premises. Now remember that Ayn Rand was really interested in the notion of an argument and the notion of a premise, of a premise and she was frequently telling people to check their premises. So my question is, when she starts by saying this or that is, a va is valuable, or when you, you say it, and when you say that we should or shouldn't perform a particular action, is that something that is accepted as self-evident by means of a sort of moral reflection or moral intuition? Or is it something that is derived by more self-evident propositions? I think it's the latter. I wouldn't say it's self-evident that you should do such and such, for instance, that you should be honest yes. or that you, you should live a productive life, creating values in some kind of career, whether as a doctor or a lawyer or an Uber driver or a dentist, as opposed to be uh, a bum on the streets who lives off of handouts from other people or accepting welfare checks from the government. Uh, so I don't think it's self-evident. I think those those sorts of ethical principles that differentiate people and that people have to choose among, those are things people have to think about and reason their way towards. It's not just obvious from the moment you're you're born as a child, you have to learn certain values and virtues that make your life a success, that make it go well. So I, I wouldn't say they're self-evident. They do have to be argued for. Um, one of the ways to get to certain val values and virtues is to recognize the long run nature of life. Uh, we don't exist just on a moment by moment basis. What we do in the present has consequences yes. for our future. So I can tell a lie now and maybe that will give me some short run benefits. But in the long run, it puts me into conflict with people. Now I, have to, I might have to invent more lies to cover up the first lie. And I always have to be worried about who, who might find me out. So we, we live a long range kind of existence. And in order to live the best sort of long range life, we need to come up with certain principles. Among them, Rand would say, is honesty. She has uh, seven virtues that she identifies as part of her ethical system. The basic virtue would be rationality, using your mind to guide your life. But it has rationality has different aspects to it, one of which is being honest, others of which are uh, having integrity, being independent, uh, having a productive career, living a prideful life where pride means being the best person that you can be. So there are many things that go into living a, a successful long range life, but they do all have to be learned. I would not say they're self-evident. Okay. And in that case, when, when you say this, I don't know whether this exactly bridges the gap between fact and value or between, let's say, the descriptive and the normative, because it seems to me that to go from the consequences to what should be the case, we do need a sort of premise that these consequences are bad. Therefore, the acts that promote these consequences are bad. So it, sti it still seems to me that if we think of an argument with premises, an inference, and a conclusion, it seems to me that at the end of the day, there needs to be nothing new at the conclusion, because if there is, we are sort of uh, arguing, we, we are basically not given an argument. We're having an arbitrary thought. So my question is whether 
you would say that uh, Rand is committed to the idea that consequences generate rightness or wrongness, i.e., the the wrongness of particular the, the badness of particular consequences, for instance, with lying, generate an, a moral obligation to not lie. And whether the, for instance, the the good consequences of integrity generate an obligation to be to to be have integrity. Would you say that this is the way she argues? There are moral obligations, but they're all chosen fundamentally. So she thinks that morality rests on the choice to live fundamentally. So there is no duty uh, or c commandment like in the religious view where you just have a, a, a religious duty or a moral duty, thou shalt not lie. Okay. Regardless of the consequences. So you talk about consequences. Uh, she does take consequences into effect, the consequences on one's own life. So for instance, with lying, if uh, a, a, a murderer comes to your door and says, you know, do you have any children or a kidnapper? He wants to take children. Are you obligated to tell the 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 kidnapper the truth and not lie? She would, she would say no. Yeah. Uh, the purpose of morality is to uh, achieve happiness and success in your own life. And that is not served if you tell the truth to to a kidnapper so you you are uh in fact obligated to lie yes. rather than the not to lie in that case because you would be serving your own interest um by lying to the kidnapper so she does definitely uh, uh consider the consequences uh of actions in uh coming to a determination as to whether they are morally whether they are something you ought to do or ought not to do so would you say that, that, that it, yeah. yeah go ahead that it's fair to draw a distinction between two two levels of advice that Ayn Rand would give one would be a more macro level let's say one more general the other a bit more specific and would focus on on uh, consequences sorry on, on particular circumstances what do i mean by that uh, that w in the beginning when we talked about fact and value it seems to me that the major argument that she would give, according to what you say, is I choose to live. Living and requires acts, actions X, Y, and Z. Therefore, I should perform actions X, Y, and Z. Is this... That's... I think that at least approximates her view. I mean, she wouldn't say there's there's an obligation to choose to live. So we might call that the primary choice. Okay. And that's what gets morality going. It's a it's sometimes called a pre-moral choice, the choice to live. Yes. Versus not live. So, uh, would, so would she say sorry, I interrupted you. Sorry. That's okay. I was just gonna add. So once you do make that primary choice to live, then all the moral obligations that she argues for would apply, such as now you have an obligation to to be honest and to be independent and productive and live a prideful life, understood in her sense of pride, making the best out of yourself. But prior to that primary choice to live, those moral obligations have no grip on you. Okay. So are they sort of generated with by choice? in a way by choice, but also by the facts of reality. So human beings have a certain nature which requires them to live in a certain way if they're going to live at all. 
uh, successfully, that is. Yeah. So in order to have a successful sort of life, she argues, you do need to adhere to such principles as honesty and being independent and being productive. Uh, so yeah, the, these, um, the, these principles are uh, downstream from the primary choice to live, but the primary choice to live itself cannot be... Uh, it's not itself a moral choice. Moral morality is downstream from that choice. I'm not sure that addressed your question. If you want to ask it again, that's fine. Um, no. So, it, judging from what uh, I hear you saying, that you she doesn't think that we have an obligation to to survive, but if we choose to survive, we need to perform particular actions. So that seems to me right. to, in let's say Kantian language, that seems to me to be a form of instrumental imperative. There's or, no categorical... Or hypothetical imperative. Yes, a yeah. hypothetical imperative. So if you right. want... If you want to, to survive, live, then you have to do such and such. Then you have to do such and such. Okay, right. right. So um, let us try and, and talk a bit about the idea of self-interest. And uh, I want to understand what it is that Ayn Rand says self-interest is because correct me if i misrepresent her but wouldn't she say that a person's self-interest is the ultimate goal of morality uh yes uh, one's own happiness it can be put in different ways one's own life one's own flourishing um i just want to add one point on the the prior discussion so um she i, I think she she would say that the the choice to live is primary but it's not arbitrary so some many people might grant, okay, yeah, if you choose to live, then you have to do all these other things, be honest. I can accept that at least for the sake of argument, one might say. Yes. But um, why? But it's, it's the whole system is arbitrary. It rests on this primary choice to live. And why should I make that? I think that gets into a kind of technical, um, tricky issue, which there's been some debate about in the objectivist literature. And I, I could point people to some resources on that um, if they're interested. But I just want to flag that that is a tricky choice, uh, which re requires some nuanced discussion. I don't know if we should get into that now, but um, I am aware of that issue. And uh, it's an interesting and important one. But uh, let me just throw it back to you. Okay. <laughs> I didn't want to derail. So, uh, no, th but if you want to return a bit uh, to this point, I'm thinking of moral let's say injunctions or moral commands yeah. you should do this you should do the other or this is valuable this the other is not that's not a command that's more of an evaluative judgment it seems to me that either they're going to be self-evident or not if they're self-evident we sort of have a more like intuitionist position like the one that harold pritchard were uh, was arguing for or um william david ross in the early 20th century and you could say that it's it represents a really strong tradition in ethical reflection throughout the centuries. If we are to say that these ethical commands are not self-evident, they need to be derived from somewhere. So it seems to me that their derivation, in order to not be arbitrary, it needs to be a very strict derivation. And the question is, especially when we talk about normative properties like the rightness or wrongness of an action, we need to understand exactly how this comes about. So unless rightness or wrongness of these actions feature somehow in the premises of the moral 
of the moral argument, the conclusion is going to be arbitrary. So it seems to me that if I were to be a, let's say, a charitable interpreter of what Ayn Rand is putting forward, she would be giving a sort of derivation that would go like this. I choose to live. In order to live, I need to be a kind of person and perform particular actions. I need to perform these actions because they have these consequences, and consequences lead to my survival or constitute to my sur uh, in my survival. And consequences generate rightness. Therefore, it is right to be that kind of person and it is right to perform these actions. Would you say that this is fair or uh, not? Uh, maybe, depending on how that's interpreted. I, I, I am... Uh... I'm taking some notes here. That's why I'm looking down sometimes. Okay. Um, I, I take your point that you can't get something in the conclusion that doesn't somehow appear in the premises. Yes. And that reminded me of a point I wanted to make, which is that Ayn Rand's approach to ethics is inductive rather than deductive. It's not a syllogism uh, where you can just deduce uh, some conclusion as to how you should act from something in the premises. It's a more kind of fact-based, observation-based approach. And now maybe that could later be formalized, at least elements of her her um, inductive approach maybe could be uh, um, trans or transitioned or um, reformulated in a deductive kind of way. But primarily, I would say it's an inductive approach. So maybe to, to flesh out a bit more about what that means, she she starts by looking out at reality and observing and with the question in mind, what are values and where do they come from? Or our notion of good and bad, like where do these come from? Um, they don't just come out of the blue. We get them from somewhere. And uh, what sorts of things can things be good or bad for? And her answer to that is living things. Okay. So for, for instance, um, take a plant right here. So things can be good good or bad for this plant. What, what would be good for it? Well, get sunlight. It gets water. It has uh, nutrients from the soil. But when we're talking about the wall, well, what what things are good or bad for the wall? Well, does that question really make sense? Are there any things that are good or bad for the wall? Now we might say it's it's uh, it's bad for the wall to be scratched. But yes. when we say that, we might what that means is it's bad for the owner of the wall. Like I don't want my wall to look bad and all scratched yes. up. You could say but the wall the has wall no itself, welfare. It has no it has no interest. It has no welfare. The wall itself, not being a living thing that faces this alternative of life or death, there's nothing to further its interests or frustrate its interest. Inanimate things, the non-living, have no interest. There's nothing that can be good or bad to inanimate inanimate things in their own right, as a, you know, distinct from you know someone who might own the inanimate things. But for living things. Things can be good or bad, and the the, the uh, standard of that is the life. That's okay. how we judge whether something is good or bad for this plant. So if it doesn't get uh, water, if there's a drought, we say that's bad for the plants because it frustrates its its ability to to live. So I think there's there's not a very um, there, or maybe there's not as sharp a distinction between the descriptive and the normative, as is often thought in contemporary philosophy, or maybe okay. going back to, to Hume or further. But Ayn Rand finds uh, values uh, very intimately associated with life and 
I tried to give some examples of where this idea of value comes from if we're just looking out of the world and being inductive rather than trying to deduce it from premises of an argument detached from observations about life and values and where they come from. So uh, I think it's good to repeat this for the audience. The, an, a more inductive way of procedure would be a way that would start from particular observations and move to a generalization, whereas the the opposite the deductive way of procedure would be would involve starting from a generalization and extracting and deducing let's say conclusions from that deducing particular conclusions from that whereas so when you say that Ayn Rand's method is inductive this seems to me again to have a, face an issue with David a problem again that David David Hume immortalized the problem of induction that how can we claim that we have a universal morality if we do proceed in an inductive manner? So David Hume was, would say that the fact that before the, let's say, the English went to Australia, they never saw a black swan before. So it, it, they performed a sort of inductive um, syllogism. I've observed... You know, this one, that swan, the other swan, and they were all white, therefore all swans are white. But that didn't mean that there wasn't there was a swan that was uh that that didn't mean that there wasn't a black swan. So my right. que my question is, how can someone be so certain or someone embrace a sort of universal morality if that morality is based on inductive? You could say evidence, right? In, in which case, uh, yeah. in which case, wouldn't that imply a sort of skepticism towards generalizations, which wouldn't necessarily mean that someone doesn't have to defend, uh, cannot defend them, because the fact that something hasn't been uh, disconfirmed doesn't mean that it's wrong, or the fact that it hasn't it hasn't been established doesn't mean that it's wrong. But it does right. seem to introduce a kind of epistemic uncertainty there. So where it seemed to me that Ayn Rand was really certain that the that the generalizations she was putting forward were universal. How could yes. she be so certain if she proceeded in a purely inductive manner? Right. Well, that's a big question. I think it's a it's a really good question. Uh, when can you claim certainty about induction, and how can Ayn Rand be so certain? So, there, there's there's a lot to be said here. But so I'll just say some things. One is I think you have to make sure that your generalizations integrate all the facts. There can't be facts that you're aware of that contradict them, like the black swan. Um, yeah. That would undermine the generalization: all swans are white. But I think to to avoid those kinds of uh, cases, you have to drill down to essentials, what, what we might call essentials. So I think color, relatively speaking, is a superficial characteristic of an organism, as opposed to um, maybe the structure. So like even human beings, we have different colors, you know, there are white people, black people, brown people, but skin color is not what I would say is an essential characteristic. I think much more essential is that human beings have the faculty of reason. Okay. Aristotle defines uh, man as the rational animal. 
that's the fundamental characteristic distinguishing human beings from other species. So I think part of the key to getting to a valid generalization that is not going to be overturned by some subsequent observations is to identify the essentials of what you're talking about. And if you do correctly identify the the essence of what you're talking about, then you can you have a better um, chance at grasping its true nature, how it acts. So given that man is the rational animal, that tells us uh, certain other things like um, man shouldn't be forced. This is a, this gets into the political aspects of Iran's philosophy. Reason doesn't function under force. A gun is not an argument. You know, Galileo, he's hauled before the the Catholic Church and is told, you know, the the uh, the earth doesn't go around the sun. The sun goes around the earth. Okay. And if you don't recant, you know, we're going to uh, put you under house arrest or something. But that's not an argument. That's just a threat of force. And he can't think in compliance with that. Now, you can you can threaten me with with some kind of penalty that but that's not going to change my mind. So since man is the rational animal and survives by reason, he should be free to apply his reason and force negates reason. That's a whole other discussion. But um, so this, how can she uh, go ahead? Sorry, does this not sound a bit more deductive? Because if we talk, talk about essentials and talk about essential natures, we are talking about natures that are possessed by people that we never, we will never meet people that uh, we, we, that were long dead before we were born and people that will live long after we die. So th this does seem to me to be more like a deductive manner of operation in that we start from the essentials, as you say, which are sort of universal natures. So wouldn't that be deductive by saying that all human beings are rational, all rational beings require, you know, these conditions to flourish. All rational beings should perform these actions in order to fl to flourish. Wouldn't that be a more, let's say, deductive way of operation? In that, I think if if yeah, if that's all you had, and if that's what you started with, that does sound deductive. But each of the premises in that have to be reached through induction. So. Uh, induction is actually presupposed by deduction. So if you're going to deduce from some general principle, well, where did you get the general principle? You had to induce it. Um, it, it didn't come unless you're a Platonist and you believe in innate ideas. We're just born with these abstract universal uh, statements, which Rand rejects. She's an empiricist. She thinks all knowledge is built up from uh, sensory observation. Um, your deduction is only strong as your, your weakest induction because all deduction rests on inductive premises. You, you look like you want to jump in here. No, no, I think that this is one way of operating. And I think that um, personally, I disagree with this. I'm more of a traditional rationalist in this case. And I do think okay. that uh, there are plenty of positions, epistemological ways that rationalists uh, appeal in order to operate. The Mino position that you refer, the idea with innate ideas, um, is only one of them, and it's not supposed to be a very um, a very strong one. I think Plato rejected it afterwards. There is this tradition of intuitionism where we say that somehow we do grasp uh, mathematical propositions like 2 plus 2 equals 4, or logical pro um, propositions such as no contradictions exist. 
This is not something that can be established by sensory observation. So it seems to me that uh, one of the, we the worst influences that Kant had in philosophy was to completely change the way that particular s terms have been used ever since, like uh, reason, like intuition, like analytic and synthetic. All of this Kant changes so much that, that uh, people after Kant have really trouble connecting with philosophical tradition. So it seems to me that this is one, there is another way of going about it. But let's, let's say that I'm wrong. It seems to me that if we base generalizations on sensory experience, we still face the problem of induction, because the question is that we traditionally have sense experiences being sensation of particulars or particular observations, in which case we would say that how come can we move from some things of a kind have a property to all things of a kind have a property? This seems to me to be an inductive leap. Yeah, and it's... Um it's it's involved in concept formation as well as the induction of principles so just the formation of concepts uh or what historically in the history of philosophy have been called universals like the concept man right it implies yes. to you and me and socrates and people in the future who haven't been born yet and we we use this term man to refer to all of them why because we observe there's some some similarity despite all the differences in height and weight and color and so forth, uh, despite all that, there's still something in common. They all exist within a range. Ayn Rand has a book called uh, Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, where she presents a theory of concepts, which is distinct from the, the historical theories like realism and nominalism. And then there's moderate realism and conceptualism, other other variations. But she offers a new theory of concepts and validates the use of concepts. Uh, you know, I think in the in the um, right contemporary philo philosophical scene, I think it's common to have the view that concepts are arbitrary. Um, many people subscribe to nominalism. There's there's really nothing except the name which is why it's called nominalism, to unite all the things we call man. Um, but she says, no, there's a factual basis for, for grouping things together. So, I, and I don't, I don't think um, there's, there's an obstacle to it in the case of concepts. So, so one question is, are concepts, you know, set aside inductive generalizations like all swans are white or all men are rational animals, just take a concept within that, just men. Yeah. Can, is that even a valid tool? That, this is a question which I think uh, many philosophers don't, they're not even, um, they don't think about this. It's not on their radar. But Ayn Rand looks at the concepts themselves and says there are valid ways of forming them and invalid ways of forming them. And if we formulate them in a valid way, then that provides a foundation for making valid inductive generalizations now she herself didn't work out a theory of induction. Her her student, most famous student, uh, Dr. Leonard Peikoff, he did work out a theory of induction uh, and applied it to some scientific issues. If anyone wants to look into that, there's a book called The Logical Leap. There's also some lectures online. But I guess a prior question to you know how do we uh, 
uh, arrive at valid generalizations is how do we arrive at valid concepts? So okay. if you're not even on board with that yet, then I would say it's premature yeah. to ask the question of how we reach valid generalizations. If you do accept that we can form valid concepts, then I think there's um, there's room to have a, a theory of uh, inductive generalization. Right. So the thing is, Ayn, Ayn Rand says in a way that selfishness is a virtue and that we should be selfish. How are we to understand this? Because very frequently, when we have some moral terms, we and we are not given information about how they are to be understood, we don't have what is required by many ethical theories. We don't have ethical guidance. So if I go and tell people, be good, do what is right, I'm not telling them much because I don't tell them what it is that goodness consists in and what it is that um, they should do. So when Ayn Rand goes and says, be selfish and promote your self-interest, what does that mean exactly? Because okay. it seems to me that there, there are many ways in which this can be understood. There are many notions of, of self-interest. Right. So if you want to know what Ayn Rand means, I have another book, which I can say, okay. The Virtue of Selfishness, a new concept of egoism. So she she offers a a new theory, as she says in the subtitle, a new concept of egoism, spelling out what her notion of selfishness is. It's so it's not the conventional notion of selfishness where you are lying and cheating and stealing to get your way and violating other people's rights. She thinks these ways of acting are actually not in your own self interest. As I mentioned earlier in the conversation, if you lie, this this is, can get you into trouble. Um, I think not only with with other people, but also you detach your own mind from reality, and that's not a good psychological state to be in. It's good to have your mind engaged in touch with reality. That's your uh, that's that's the means of attaining values. If you, if you're detached from reality, then you're you're not going to succeed in this world in this reality. So she gives arguments as to. Um, why one should act in a certain way in order to uh, achieve one's own long, long run self-interest. So there are the other virtues I mentioned also, independence, integrity, okay. um, productiveness. So all of these constitute her idea of what it means to be self-interested or selfish or egoistic. Some people say she shouldn't have used the term selfishness because it has this uh, a historical association with this other way of being and I, I think you know that's that's a reasonable objection one might make but she argues um for uh, uh co-opting or reclaiming this term and uh reconceptualizing what it means but aside from the particular label that one uses um she, uh, it's good to pursue one's own interests whether we call that selfishness or self-interest that is what one um, ought to be doing. And what it means to pursue one's own interests is to adhere to these virtues like rationality and honesty and so forth. Okay, so it seems to me that what, she, what, what you're describing is that she would say that, that people have a wrong understanding of what selfishness is, and she has the correct understanding of what selfishness is, and that... Right the wrong understanding of what selfishness is implies that self-interest means long, uh, short-term self-interest. 
So most people will have an idea of what it is that they need to do in order to uh, achieve particular goals, that she would say that they're mistaken in thinking that these are worthy goals in the short term, and that they're wrong in, th they're wrong in thinking that these values will contribute to a long-term good life. Correct. Right. So the, it seems to me that what she's putting forward here is the distinction between short-term self-interest and long-term self-interest. Is that the thing she's putting forward? Or does she still have another understanding of selfishness, self-interest? So well, is it just it, uh, when she tells me to pursue my self-interest, does she tells me that don't understand this in a in a short-term way, understand it in a long-term way. See what is going to be good, conducive to a, to your welfare long-term and do that. Is that what she's putting forward? Yeah, that's correct. She would say if you're just acting on the range of the moment and not considering the long run, you're actually not doing what's in your self-interest. You might get some pleasure right now, but it's, it's going to come back to hurt you later on. Okay, so okay, here is something where I don't I don't get something about uh, the concept of of selfishness. That it seems to me that there are some people whose long term self interest would be promoted by the vices, by certain certain things that Ayn Rand would consider to be vicious, such as dishonesty or lack of integrity. So it seems to me that, for instance, there are some people. To wh whose self-interest would be promoted in a long-term way, not just a short-term way. There could be people who are very, let's say, they're really good in calculation, and they are basically thinking of th their long-term self-interest. And they would say that it can get promoted by the behaviors that Ayn Rand calls vicious. So, for instance, I, I can think mm -hmm. of uh, a character from the Fountainhead, Ellsworth Tui. Uh, he seems to me to be the main villain of the book. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't stupid. He was really smart. It was. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that she was saying that he had a sort of evaluative lack of wisdom. Instrumentally, he was incredibly clever. Sure. Yeah, but I think he was also. Uh not happy i okay. think he he realized he was sorry for the plot spoilers for anyone who who hasn't read this but um uh you can always pause it of course yeah um i recommend everyone check out the book um yeah i think he was he was um profoundly lacking in self-esteem and he he recognized that he was just a parasite a psychological parasite who had nothing of value to offer in his own rights and he just uh, lived for smashing down others who were who were better, who were who had something of value to offer the world. And there's there's one famous scene which I think is very powerful. He he so he spends his whole his his life attacking the hero of the book, Howard Rourke. And uh, Howard Rourke is always on his minds. He so. People say, you know, living in someone's head rent-free. I think that happened a lot in the case of uh, Howard Warwick living in Ellsworth Tui's mind. And there's a scene 
where he goes, he, he meets Howard Rourke in, in, in real life. And he says, you know, I, I've been wanting to know, I forget ex- exactly how he puts it, but she says, uh, I want to know what you think of me. And then Rourke responds, I don't think of you, but I don't think of you, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. which is just kind of a crushing, a soul crushing um, blow to Tui. Um, he spends all his time occupied with work and Rourke and he's obsessing about him and work just, he, he, he's a nothing to Rourke and Tui understands that he's just a nobody and he, he's, he's a worthless person. And I don't think you can be that sort of parasitical, uh, worthless human being and achieve happiness in your life. So yeah, sure. He's very cunning and he's, he's an intelligent character, but he doesn't use his intelligence for uh good purposes purposes that would promote his own happiness he 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 uses them for uh nihilistic uh corrupt purposes and as a result i think he's miserable i think i have two things to um add here is that it seems to me that that would be a problem for his happiness if he had a moral conscience but not everyone has a moral conscience so what if how, how does uh, Randian objectivism account for people who don't have moral conscience and they they're they could be happy without care they, they could not care about these things so you say that Ellsworth Tui who is the main villain of the Fountainhead was somehow um how should I put it he was torn he, he was not happy because he realized that he was a sort of um, nobody, as you said. Now, I, let, let me give you a, a counterexample, let's say, as we say in, in ethics. What if Ellsworth Tui didn't care about the recognition of Howard Rourke? And he didn't care about, he, he didn't think that if Rourke gave him that response, uh, it would um, be a problem for him. Let's say Ellsworth Tui was someone who wanted to be behind the curtain and operate behind the curtain always, and uh, he didn't even he wanted that anonymity. He could okay. still pursue his self-interest. He would be incredibly clever in pers- in uh, in promoting his long-term self-interest. He wouldn't go after fame, for instance. He would be operating behind the curtain. And he, w- he would have no conscience that would be bothered by, let's say, the perceptions, let's say, of his humanity and his immorality occasionally. And he could be happy. He, he would require no recognition by anyone. And he could be, inc- in- he could be happy. Would that be, would that be a person that... It seems to me that Ayn Rand would definitely say that he was, he would not be moral because this character is much worse than Ellsworth Tui, and she thought Ellsworth Tui to be the villain. But it seems to me that this person does promote his self-interest long range. Okay, well, if he spends his time maybe only behind the scenes, uh, rather than being a newspaper columnist as Ellsworth Tui was. But if he's he's not in a famous kind of role, but he, but he's just he still spends his time tearing people down, people who are good, who are the builders, the creators of the world, who push mankind forward, as Howard Work does. He he's an architect who uh, produces daring new new buildings. 
uh, Frank Lloyd Wright is sometimes uh, cited as a model, at least in in that aspect of Rourke's character, as a daring kind of architect. But it, it, if you spend your time tearing down the innovators of the world, I think you're going to be miserable regardless. I don't think it matters whether you do that behind the scenes secretly or you do it openly. Um, it's if you because when you act that way, you're acting contrary to the requirements of life, uh, of what makes a life good. People like Howard Rourke, the inventors, the innovators, push mankind forward. Those are the kinds of people you want to flourish, and everyone should do this insofar as their capacity c- permits. What but if, if someone is a sadist? If you're pulling that, that, that back, then you're just going against the requirements of, of successful living. What if someone is a sadist and gets immense satisfaction from bringing, leveling people down and bringing people down? I think if you're a sadist, I, I really doubt that you could be happy. I mean, I think uh, you, you might get some kind of sick, twisted pleasure. Uh, I mean, just like uh, anyone who, who indulges in some kind of uh, irrationality might get some sick, twisted pleasure in the moment. Like I might tell a rude joke at somebody's expense and I get a laugh in the moment. But uh, if if it was unjust to tell this joke at somebody's expense, then I think I, I'm going to be feeling guilty um, as, a, as, a result, as a result of doing this. I'm going to harm my capacity to form uh, fulfilling relationships with people. Who's going to want to be my friend if I go around being rude and insulting making fun of other people. I'm damaging my own prospects for having healthy, happy relationships. So I think just because you can get some kind of pleasure doesn't mean you're doing what's conducive to to your long run happiness. Right. So, so, so would you yeah. would you say that because it seems to me that this is one common misrepresentation of her position that uh, for her self-interest consists in pleasure. And maximization of self-interest consists in maximization of pleasure. Would you say that this is this is a common misrepresentation? And in, in which case, she doesn't think of pleasure as being constitutive of the good life or as being the fundamental. She, w- she wouldn't say that we shouldn't uh, have pleasure, but it seems to me that she would say that pleasure is not the the highest uh, value would would she would she say that self-interest and maximization of self-interest consists in maximization of one's individual pleasure or would she have a different account of self-interest where she would that would be a bit less let's say benthamite because the, the this one seems to me to be like atomistic benthamite utilitarianism bentham would say promote the greater good for the greatest number where the greatest good for the greatest number consists in the highest, let's say, net average net ratio of pain and pleasure, of pleasure and pain. Um, the atomistic Benthamite utilitarianism would be, would go like this. For every individual, each individual should maximize their own pleasure. Would you say that this is what Ayn Rand would put forward or would she have an understanding of self-interest that wouldn't p- put pleasure to such a high level well it depends what is meant by pleasure 
Okay. So if pleasure is understood in a very narrow sense is just bodily physical pleasures, like the pleasure you get from eating ice cream uh, or for getting a massage, um, then uh, it, I don't think it would be correct to say her view is that you should maximize pleasure. But if you have a broader notion of pleasure that includes those things, those physical bodily pleasures, but also emotional or intellectual pleasures, as we might call them, or happiness, then I think you could say that uh, she thinks we should maximize pleasure. And she does say in some places that the highest moral purpose of a human being's life is the pursuit of happiness. So she does place a, a supremely high, the very highest value on happiness, which you might think of as a kind of pleasure in a broad sense of pleasure. Um, but contrary to the utilitarians, she would say we should maximize our own pleasure, not just pleasure in general in the universe, but uh, uh, my own pleasure, or your own pleasure, if you're you. But you know that's consistent with um, caring about other people's pleasure, but only if it somehow contributes to your own pleasure. Like I might care about the pleasure of my friend, but that's because my friend matters to me. Yeah. I want to see my friend doing well. So if he achieves pleasure and happiness, that contributes to my own happiness. So it, it all grounds out in an egoistic kind of way on her view, contrary to the utilitarians. Okay, so I have a I have an issue because this was troubling me in the past with uh, Ayn Rand's uh, writings. So it's not the vulgar notion of happiness. It's not the vulgar notion of pleasure. It's not the vulgar form of egoism. That she said, as you, as you say, she claims that most people are completely mistaken with what is what self-interest is and what is to their own self-interest. And so my question there is whether actually she is not putting forward anything revolutionary in ethics, but actually she does a semantic trick, the semantic trick of redefining selfishness or true selfishness, true happiness, true pleasure, to cover many virtues that are traditionally, or you could say commonsensically, associated with other regarding behavior. In which case, it seems to me that she wouldn't be putting forward anything revolutionary for uh, anything revolutionary, but except by a way of reframing things. Because if we think of the notion of self-interest, and we say that there's a distinction to be drawn between vulgar self-interest and enlightened self-interest. There are men, plenty of philosophers who would not be altruists in Ayn Rand's sense, and we could talk about that in a, in a second, but they do advocate actually that position. Let me just give you one example. Plato in the Republic, who I, I don't think uh, Ayn Rand was particularly fond of Plato, I, I think she wasn't, he, his main theme in the, in the discussion, his main uh, goal there is to make the case that the just life is the life that is to one's benefit. So Plato, for instance, was no altruist in, in that sense. He is in favor of an enlightened self-interest. But the question here is whether Rond is actually putting forward, she has a common sense morality, and she's just presenting it as being selfish, being selfish in an enlightened fashion. 
Okay. So I, I don't think it's it's just the semantic shift. I do think there is a a genuine substantive difference between Rand's ethics and that of most ethical theories in history. So she, I think most people think that self-sacrifice is is a good thing. They admire someone like Mother Teresa, who is a symbol of self-sacrifice, or Jesus on the cross, uh, if you're religious. But I think even many non-religious people have adopted a religious sort of ethic of altruism, and they extol self-sacrifice and being selfless as a good thing. And uh, Rand says, no, uh, self-interest is a, is a good thing across the board. And I mean that consistently. A lot of people might concede, okay, I, I grant that it doesn't make sense to be uh, uh, self-sacrificing all the time, there, but we should have a kind of balance between selfishness and self-sacrifice. Uh, we shouldn't go to extremes, uh, and that's the best way to live. But Rand's view is, no, we should be self-interested across the board, 100% consistently. And I, I think that is a a radical view. And if it were a common sense view, I don't know why she would be so controversial and polarizing and attacked um, as much as she is. Uh, th there's more I could say about that, but um, let me throw it back to you. Okay. So it seems to me that when, she, when you're talking about self-sacrifice, um, yeah. what does that mean and what I, why i'm asking i'm asking because the thing is if she's putting forward an enlightened notion of self-interest then i can i can accept that she's not putting forward just a semantic she's not doing just a semantic shift she does put something forward which seems to me to boil down to the question of what she considered to be virtues and what she considered to be vicious now i was thinking and I will link this with uh, the notion of self-sacrifice. Uh, mm. Yes. So I was thinking of her writings and her books as basically offering us a springboard for asking what are the virtues and vices that she is talking about. And it seems to me that there are some things in the books that troubled me. And I was saying that this doesn't seem to me to be virtuous behavior. And I'll just give you one example. So, in Atlas Shrugged, it's the question of relationships between human human beings. Because at the end of the day, we, would, we, we couldn't say, anyone who says that I'm in favor of an enlightened form, form of self-interest still faces the question, what is the, the position in one's hierarchy of values of relationships with other people. So, where are my children in that hierarchy of values? Where is my spouse? Where is my friend? Where are my compatriots, let's say? Where are my community members? So, it seems to me that when she says that she's attacking altruism, most people would understand altruism uh, not in a technical way, but in, in, in the sense of other regarding behavior. So, you could, uh, uh, you could say that the, someone who is sacrificing his or her life for their values. It seems to me that what they're doing is they forego their long-term self-interest, but we wouldn't call them vicious. So, if someone, let's say, if uh, you d someone dies in defense of uh, his or her country, 
he or she forego their long-term interest, but would that be vicious behavior? Uh, I think it depends on the reason why someone... So if you're a soldier in an army, if you, 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 can, you can fight for the cause of freedom, your, your own freedom. Uh, Patrick, Lim, uh, Patrick Henry famously said, give me liberty or give me death. So if you're fighting for that sort of country, a country of freedom, then I think it can be very self-interested to fight and risk your life because you'd rather, you'd rather die than live as a slave. But if you are just a, if you're say in a Nazi society or a communist society where the individual has no rights, where you're just enslaved to some dictator, then there's no reason to, to fight, uh, on behalf of that kind of country, you wouldn't be fighting on, uh, for the cause of freedom. So if you just uh, volunteer to join uh, to defend a, a Nazi regime or a communist regime, I think then you would be selfless. But I think Rand would add that you're also being vicious. You're you're not. I mean, assuming you're you do this voluntarily and you're not forced into it at gunpoint, you're not conscripted. Uh, she was opposed to conscription. Um, then it actually is a vicious thing because. Your, your own happiness is what matters most in your own life. And you wouldn't be serving that by fighting for a regime that undermines freedom because freedom is something that all human beings need to live a successful life. I, and I thought to, there are some other points I wanted to make uh, real quickly on the, um, the, the point about it being a uh, semantic versus a substantive uh, difference. Uh, so another part that makes her contribution substantive, I think, is that she gives a validation or a proof of her ethics. So yes, there have been views that might be called enlightened self-interest in the history of thought. I think the, the founding fathers of the United States might be considered part of that tradition. They talked about the pursuit of happiness as one of their rights in the Declaration of Independence, but they said this is a right that men are endowed by their creator with. So they didn't they had a mystical kind of religious view of the foundation of of rights whereas she provide a secular rational foundation of rights and also of ethics. So I, I don't think any ethicist prior to Rand had noti noticed the intimate uh, um, connection between uh, the nature of values in life. So the things we were talking about before about plants, for instance, they they have these needs. Um, which uh, non-living things like the wall does not. This is this sort of discussion about where do values come from grounds a scientific objective proof of her ethics and enables her to uh, present a more consistent form of self-interest than I think had been uh, offered by any other uh, thinker in the enlightened self-interest. So I'd say that that validation of self-interest would be another substantive, uh, non-semantic con uh, contribution right. she made. You also said things about children and others and how that fits in. And I can talk about that, but I've been going on for a while. So let, let me let's let's uh, go that in a minute. But I want to return okay. a bit to the idea of fighting with your compatriots. Because okay. let's say that you do fight. Let's change the scenario a bit to see what Rand would say. So if... There is no, you know that in a particular battle, you need to fight, you need to fight with many people, with your compatriots, and there won't be, it's a sort of a suicide mission, but it is going to be in order to save your family. That's one thing. And the other bit is that 
So in that case, you could be gi giving your life for your, uh, for your uh, let's say, family. You would forego your personal self-interest, but you would be doing something for them. Well, I think she would argue no, or at least not necessarily. So even if you do give up your life for someone, it might be the case that you would rather do that than live your own life without those people because they mean so much to you that if you lost them, it would just be a devastating blow to you. Maybe you would become depressed and want to commit suicide. So it might be better for you to take the risk or maybe even it's a certainty. It's not even a risk. But does to, this not to, to, show... To but sorry, does this not show that her conception of happiness and of enlightened self-interest does involve other regarding behavior? So if, in which case, she's not putting forward a radically egoistic thing forward. She's, she seems to me to be taking something that traditionally most people would say it's altruistic, not in the technical sense that she introduces in the virtue of selfishness, but what most people would call altruistic, you give your life for your, let's say, for your uh, family and country. And she introduces a way in which we are going to conceive this, conceive of this as self-interest. Right. In which yeah, case, so if when she says, be, uh, pursue your self-interest, her notion of self-interest could involve something like that, something like sacrificing your life for your family. It doesn't seem to me to be so robustly different from common sense morality. It seems to me that she's doing a semantic shift. And just one thing to, not to put forward. I would like to ask you here, how would you feel or what would you think if you were in such a case and you were fighting side by side with someone who had no family yet, and was approached by the other side and was told that we are going to bribe you to give the to give away the the location of your uh, uh, compatriots and betray them and in return i will marry you to my daughter for instance and i will make you very rich and you will be uh you will enjoy a really uh, immense degree of freedom in our side and you wouldn't be, you would have more, let's say, you would be rest assured. Wouldn't you feel that this person would be a traitor even if that person agreed to be bribed? In which case, would, wouldn't, that be, wouldn't that be vicious? If that person felt no gratitude for, let's say, the, for a free country that, uh, and uh, felt no sense of companionship with the his or her compatriots and just betrayed them for a better deal wouldn't that be a bit vicious it seems to me that it's not it's not praiseworthy behavior yeah as you describe it, it it sounds like it likely would be a vicious kind of act and maybe you couldn't live with yourself uh, afterwards which is why i think it, it might actually be a self-interested act to not betray um your your fellow countrymen if they're from a country that's pro-freedom but as to um it being other regarding to risk or give up your life for your family i mean in a way it's other regarding but i don't think fundamentally it is okay so you are showing care for others and in that way it's other regarding but i think more fundamentally it's for your own self-interest because these other people are a value to you they matter to you 
and that's why you are you are risking or giving up your life um, because your life just would be so miserable without them um, that it wouldn't be worth living. So it's actually best for your own happiness to make the most of um, y- your own life, even if that means you know what's what's left of it is short, right? Uh, it's better to um, it might be better in some cases to to give up your life um, because your your life and uh, without those people just wouldn't worth be worth living. So yes, it is other regarding, but more fundamentally, it's self regarding, or it should be self regarding. Now, if, if if you don't care about anyone else, if other people are not a value to you, then maybe it wouldn't be um, a uh, self regarding act. But you know, depending on how we paint, uh, filling the details. Then I, I think um, risking your life in in a military operation could very well be a self interested act fundamentally. Right. So I'm a bit conscious of time because we need to have yeah. uh, we need to raise some topics. And one last thing um, from the books, it seemed to me that the relationships between some of the characters, especially male female relationships in Atlas Shrugged, um, they don't seem to me to be praiseworthy. And, and what do I mean by that? So it seems to me that the main protagonist, the main female protagonist of Atlas Shrugged was, uh, had an affair with three men in that book, not simultaneously, but she was sort of, it, she, it seemed to me that she was ma- making some calculations and every time she encountered someone who was more virtuous according to her scale of virtue, she was um ditching the the first guy moving to the second and then ditch the second and move to the third it seems to me that this is not the ideal re- behavior for relationships and it, it, i don't know what, what do you think of this well i i think that presentation of uh, what happens with the the main the heroine the, the main female character in atlas shrugged gives a, a somewhat of a mi- misimpression of of um the, the way she acts i mean she has one childhood friend this is giving away major plot spoilers so please anyone if you haven't read the book maybe maybe you'll want to pause it here and read the book again i recommend reading alistair um but um so the first relationship she has is when she was she's young she's a teenager and it lasts for a number of years and then mysteriously the the man she's with leaves her and she doesn't understand why it's part of the mystery of the book is unraveling what's going on here and um and then years right. later maybe many years later she meets another man who is a, a, a heroic producer a steel magnate a big industrialist and she she has a relationship with with him and in all of the characters that she has relationships with, uh, romantic relationships with, she loves deeply. So this is the opposite of a promiscuous slut who just brainlessly sleeps with, you know, every man who walks by her um, and gives her, you know, a smidgen of attention. Dagny Taggart has very high standards. She looks for heroic men and um, men who match her own great character. And then John Galt, who is the the final hero, he's he's her perfect match. And once she meets him, she she realized, you know, Reardon, Hank Reardon, he, the steel magnate, he's a great guy, but he's he's not, not as great. Um, he's not the one for me. His okay. soul is um, 
as excellent as it is, John Galt is just more of a match for her. And then she, once she meets Galt, uh, she she has a relationship with him. So I don't think there's anything um, slutty at all. I mean, it's quite, it's the 180 degrees opposite of that. She she looks for very virtuous men, and that's what attracts her. Okay, now let's go to free will and link it with uh, Rand's uh, philosophy. So. Let me say that I believe in free will of a strong variety, of a strong libertarian variety, that other things being equal, human beings have the ability to do otherwise. And it seems to me that Ayn Rand would be sort of there, or at least she would be a compatibilist, where compatibilists think that free will and determinism are compatible. But would you say that she would be, she would be a compatibilist or a libertarian? Uh, a libertarian in the metaphysical sense, not the political sense. She she was very keen to distinguish herself from political libertarians who she saw as kind of anarchists, anti-state hippies of the right. She called them in one place. But yeah, when it comes to free will, she did believe that human beings have the ability to make choices. They can do otherwise. And she she rejected determinism and did not think that that was consistent with free will so she would not have been a compatibilist right so one of the things that is interesting to to discuss with you because um i don't think we should go on any metaphysical discussion about the versions of free will and stuff like that let's keep it simple and how it relates to ayn rand's philosophy now when i'm arguing in favor of free will in various cases. I frequently encounter people who are misrepresenting what the notion is supposed to be, and they are misrepresenting the kinds of attitudes that libertarian, metaphysical libertarians are supposed to have. So very frequently, support of free will, for, support for free will is linked to public imagination, let's say, with a very hard mentality on uh, and very judgmental mentality, according to which anything people do is something that they chose, and anything everyone is responsible for 100% of what it is that happens to them. Personally, I don't agree with this. I do think that uh, we do have freedom, but to an extent. There are many things that are not up to us. And that, this is not something I found in, uh, in Ayn Rand. It seems to me that Ayn Rand doesn't have much place for luck in her philosophy, and she does sort of present people uh, as uh, being fundamentally, radically um, responsible for what happens to them. And uh, I, I think that she, so although there may be a meta, uh, an agreement with with respect to metaphysical libertarianism, there seems to me to be a very judgmental attitude in the writings of Ayn Rand. Would, would you say that this is fair or would you say that it, it, it is not? And let me just contextualize a bit to help you to your answer. What I'm saying is that someone could simultaneously believe in free will and also believe that we should first understand people before we criticize and be ready to um, think that there are frequently morally exculpatory conditions that render, let's say, suboptimal behavior amoral, as opposed to immoral. Does, mm -hmm. does this make sense? Okay, so, um, she, I mean, she does say, judge and prepare to be judged. Yeah. So you, you might think from a state like, statement like that, she's very judgmental. And in a way, I think she is. 
um, she she does judge things, but in a in a rational way. So another part of her philosophy is that you should be rational. This is the the primary virtue of the the objectivist ethics. Use your mind. Be rational. Um, observe the facts. Don't evade the facts or pretend the facts are other than they are. And if you don't have facts about someone, then you're not in a position to judge. So yes, you should judge, but you should judge responsible responsibly. And in accordance with your perception of the facts, but what you shouldn't do is observe that the facts are a certain way and then refrain from judging out of some emotional consideration like, oh, I'm going to ruffle somebody's feathers or I'm uh, going that's to. Not what um, I meant. That, that's not what I meant. Okay. Um, so I'm not saying that we shouldn't be judgmental. I think that we should, but we should also, I think, as you said, if we are rational, we should be, I think it is part of what we traditionally understand as rash, rationality to accept that human beings have limitations and to sure. accept what uh, most uh, theories of ethical responsibility say, that the conditions for being morally responsible for a particular action are, let's say, knowledge of, of what it is that you are doing and knowledge of the consequences, as well as control over your actions. So it seems to me that there are frequently cases where people act in a wrong way, not because they are immoral, but because they don't know better. In mm -hmm. which case, it seems to me that Ayn Rand would, would say that, well, they were parasites or who didn't know better and they didn't exercise their minds. Whereas we could have a more relaxed approach and say, well, okay, sometimes it's, it's, it's expectable. It's to be expected that some people are ignorant about some of the aspects of their lives. Yeah, I think that's consistent with her view. I mean, she would, okay. she definitely recognizes a distinction between what she calls errors of knowledge and breaches of morality. I think that's uh, from Atlas Shrugged. She uses those phrases. So yeah, certainly people might mistake, make mistakes. And she has her characters like Hank Reardon, who was mentioned before, and Dagny Taggart, the heroine. They make mistakes about um, people's motivations. What's motivating someone like James Taggart in the novel or uh, Ellsworth Tui in The Fountainhead, they have a kind of uh, benevolent view of these characters, whereas she she thinks there's something more malicious going on. They're consciously evil. They know they're doing wrong. They're just not, they're not just innocently mistaken. But she recognizes that distinction between um, innocent mistakes and breaches of morality where you're evading the facts. You're pushing um, the facts out of your mind. You're not accepting as true what you know to be true. You're sticking your head in the sand. Right. That's okay. where she, she has an issue. And she says, if you're doing that, yeah, that's immoral. But uh, you, you can certainly make mistakes. And her her heroes in her novel, they definitely make mistakes. And part of the novel is they're coming to grasp what their mistakes are and, and coming to a more correct view. But they're honestly mistaken. They're not like the villains who are, who are uh, not honestly mistaken. They're actually immoral, evading facts. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, I think we should move to our last uh, question. Uh, do you think we should talk about the axiom A is A, existence exists? Sure, we can talk about A is A, the yeah, law of identity. I, you, you mentioned it in the beginning. Now, I mean, I agree with I this. I mentioned existence exists. Yes, but I don't see yeah. how this is, how this has uh, content or how this we can extract content because okay existence exists duh whatever okay uh -huh. <laughs> who who would deny that N not only who would deny that because w w there are there are people 
who want to make a name of themselves uh, with respect to, and they think that making foolish positions uh, is one way. I, I'm, I'm, I don't think we should uh, think of them and we should spend time discussing them. But my question is, Ayn Rand presents this as a very pivotal aspect of her philosophy as an axiom. And I don't see how this adds anything other than, okay, I'm not I'm going to accept any crazy view that reality doesn't exist. In so my question would be if I were to be a bit more technical and illustrate exactly what, I, what my issue is. If we had one argument with premises, one of which was A is A, what, what else could we extract from it? Well, A is what A. What follows from is, A is A? Right. Well, it follows that man is man. <laughs> but okay. uh, you have to, uh, as I said before, it's an inductive philosophy. It's not a deductive philosophy. So her approach is not to find some string of words and then try to um, tease out um, implications from it. Rather, she looks at reality and makes observations. And it, it's that way with the axioms too. So it, if it's if you're approaching the axioms in a kind of uh, rationalistic or um, just a language, it's just a semantic kind of thing rather than a fact of reality, which I think a, a lot of people in contemporary philosophy, logicians, they treat these as just formalistic, linguistic statements rather than truths about reality, then I don't think you can really get far with these things. But she she's coming at it from a different framework, an inductive kind of framework. So when she says something like existence exists, um, part of the function of that is to rivet ourselves to reality and not do the things like I was talking about before, like evade facts. So everyone, sure, like you say, no one's going to deny explicitly that existence exists. Well, there are probably some people, some nihilists, you know, fringe elements of who might deny it. But for the most part, sure, everyone's going to agree with existence exists, but they deny it by implication. Whenever they evade facts, they pretend things are other than they are. They're not facing the fact that A is A. They're trying to have their cake and eat it too. Is a you know a common way it's sometimes put. But you know if you grasp, for instance, you know man is a a rational being. He survives by reason. His mind can't function by force. Well, every time the government uh, tries to coerce citizens. Uh, they're denying man's nature. They're not respecting the nature of man, the fact that he is a rational animal. So by implication, they're denying these axioms, but explicitly, it, it, so it's easy to get them explicitly once they're discovered, which took until Aristotle, I think, to get some of these. But to consistently adhere to the axioms in your everyday practice, that's more of a challenge. And, and just last question, um, if it's an axiom, how can it be inductively arrived at? Because again, it seems to me that if someone treats our knowledge of logical laws and, log and basic logical facts, such as the law of non-contradiction, as, um, as generalizations that are inductively arrived at, then we have basically John Stuart Mill's position that every generalization is the radical empiricism of John Stuart Mill. And this seems to me to basically create a problem for us, and it doesn't give us the robust defense against, let's say, irrationalism, because instead of saying that, no, we have rational intuition of logical properties, 
and logical laws such as the logical law of non-contradiction, such as the statement two plus two equals four, we are open to being somehow disproved by experience, by sense experience. So it seems to me that describing this adherence to strict logical laws, and I share this sentiment, uh, but describing it as something that is deep down inductively arrived at seems to me to be a bit too thin. This, this is where I part with, with, um, with uh, the uh, empiricist understanding of it. What, what do you think mm -hmm. of this? And it seems to me that all of what you said, okay, we could say that it's self-evident, but I don't see how it follows from A is A. Okay, so I, I might need to correct something I said when I... So maybe instead of saying it was an inductively arrived at, I should have said it's observed. So I think the axioms, they're, they're, um, they are self-evident in perception. So we observe, you know, this, this leaf has a certain nature. It's green. It looks green. It's not green and red at the same time or in the same respect. Um, yeah. Or this wall is not beige uh, and purple at the same time in the same respect. Uh, so th these are things that... Um, it's not both green and non-green or beige and non-beige. So I think we do observe these things. Uh, the axioms are implicit in perception. They're not, they're not induced in a way that a principle like um, one should be honest or uh, one should be rational. Those are induced. But I think they are at the basis of induction. So knowledge starts with these um, axioms, which are implicit in perception and then we can build uh, inductively upon those those axioms. Uh, but I, I was just right. trying to get away from the um, deductive, linguistic, formalistic uh, approach towards axioms. When I said it, it was uh, an inductive kind of approach towards axioms, I associate induction more with observation and empiricism. Um, but anyways, I think Rand's view is that axioms are self-evidence in perception. Uh, they're not um, a, a result of, I mean, maybe it takes multiple perceptions to get the idea of any okay. given axiom, but yeah. I, I think it's at least implicit in each observation that things that A is A or that things are not both A and non-A at the same time and in the same respect. Right. So I think um, we, we should uh, end uh, our discussion now. I must say that I really enjoyed it. I hope you did but as did well. Did, uh, yes. did, did you enjoy it? Uh, oh, definitely. Great. Uh, and I, I want I want to say that um, I really enjoy talking with uh, people who have uh, different views. And I hope you did not uh, feel that I was misrepresenting the position. I hope you, uh, d you didn't think that I completely presented Ayn Rand's position in, a, in an uncharitable way. No, I mean, I, I think uh, I think there were there's some times like when the, when you present Dagny in a certain way, which I, I think might create a misimpression. But overall, I mean, I, it seems like you're 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 trying to you're not you're not out to straw man her or deliberately distort her. At least in in the way I see often done online, I think a lot of people just try to smear her, and they're they're not open to like once you if you present a certain view of Rand, they might just evade, you know, stick their head in the sand and try to distort. Your your correction of their mischaracterization, but you know I didn't I didn't get that sense from you at all. So you know I appreciate that and um, your your willingness to have this discussion. Right, I, I definitely enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you as well. So.
I hope you enjoyed this discussion and see you next time.